0: Hi, I'm Gio.
1: I'm Renee.
0: And this is Listen to Me Podcast, where you get all the greatest and unqualified advice from qualified creatives.
1: Basically, we go through it so you can turn your teenage dreams into a fantasy-fueled literary escapade.
0: Yeah. And I did it
1: without <laughs> hitting my desk. How about that?
0: Oh my god, the amount of times in uh, the last few in last week's episode going into a commercial break, you're like, I have to stop hitting my mic. And then and we come back. hit it? And then we like say hello to the guests and it's immediately like, fuck, I hit the mic.
1: (laughs) I'm telling you, I have to get used to this new setup. It's so weird having it in my office because when I was recording in Clay's office, I was very cognizant that, well, his computer kit too is a lot more expensive than mine. So Mm -hmm. every time I'm in there, I feel like an eight-year-old in a China shop. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. keeping my hands and arms inside a two foot radius so that I don't accidentally knock over anything, even though I'm not really bringing any liquids in there. But in my office, I'm just all flaley shillelagh. So I'm
2: <laughs> to oh my having God. the
1: mic set up,
0: that's a drag name right there. <laughs> flaley oh, <yeah>. shillelagh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That reminds me of the time i was talking about how i was upset about something and instead of just saying it like a normal human being i said i was upsetty spaghetti about it and my friend amanda was like you were what i was like you can use that one free of charge you're welcome
0: for some reason makes me think of angela anaconda
1: oh my god you remember
0: that cartoon yeah with pepperoni the dead dog
1: no i didn't remember there was a dead dog i like fully remember angela anaconda but i don't think i ever
0: watched it i remember the promos her like arch nemesis was this like blonde girl and (laughs) she had a dog named pepperoni it it had tire marks across it with x's for eyes (laughs) and she dragged it around and it was like a dead dog she was like come on pepperoni (laughs) 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 it was so good I like
1: it, though, because I can tie that back into our theme for today. So today's (laughs) guest is Lizelle Sambury. I started following her on Instagram. I don't remember when. I think it might have been a couple of years ago when I first joined Instagram and tried to set up my author profile, so to speak, on there. Mm -hmm. And we might have just, I, I might have come across her profile in a follow loop, which If you don't know what a follow loop is, I will quickly explain it. It's these things on Instagram where you're like, oh, follow for follow. And everybody follows each other because we have a like-minded community. And and you want to follow authors. And in my case, it was authors and other writers, especially YA writers and stuff like that. So the intention behind these follow loops are really great. But what I found is that there's a lot of (laughs) really aggressive policing and people are watching their follows oh, like, like a you, hawk.
0: If you get if you unfollow so, them cuz you're like I don't want to see nudes yes,
1: anymore or whatever like I ended up following a bunch of people who wrote for example memoir stuff which I'm not really interested in or a lot of people who were loudly advocating for the military which I'm also not really interested in regardless of what kind of stuff they're writing. I'm really excited to have Lizelle on the show. Her debut novel, Blood Like Magic, is a fantasy YA about black witches. So it's like an urban fantasy, which is a really specific genre where it's kind of like the world is like our world. It just happens to have magic also. So you could even kind of think of Harry Potter as as like an urban fantasy or a fantasy book. But those were the kind of books that I loved to read when I was a young adult. And Mm -hmm. I like to write in that genre too, because it makes me think of that time as a kid. Because for a while when you're a kid, you know, you might have an awareness of things that are kind of dark or twisted or angsty, but I feel like it doesn't really come into the forefront until you start, you're kind of on the cusp of adolescence, right? And that's when I started, and Gio, you remember how much of an avid reader I was, but when I was a kid... I would say around 12, 13 or maybe even, yeah, 11, 12, 13 was when I started to have an interest in books that I would, that I started hiding from my parents. Because I grew (laughs) up in a really conservative house. I have friends whose parents actually read the books that they their kids read before they would let their kids read the books and thankfully mm-hmm. that was not the case with my parents simply because the volume was too high I read who has so who the, has the time <laughs> like when we would go to the library I can distinctly remember kind of making stacks and pulling books out and sort of sandwiching the more suspect books in between ones with covers that looked more age appropriate so that my parents wouldn't censor them and take them away <laughs>
0: That's awesome. I was like the opposite. I would, because my mom worked at the library at Windsor Public. And so I would literally say, I want these books. Can you bring them home for me? And so so I didn't even have to go to the library. They just had a delivery service. I had Amazon Shangela Prime (laughs) 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 for books. (laughs) I love that. Can we make a Shangela
1: reference into every episode? She's my fave.
0: Yes, Shangela is—I call my mother, by the way. Yes, not <laughs> for not, anyone who doesn't know, <laughs> not
1: Shangela LaQuifa Wadley, who also has many podcasts that you can check out.
0: <laughs> we love her too. Absolutely. Go.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
2: Hey.
1: Good. Hi. Nice to meet you. Geo, your grass background is my favorite thing in the world.
0: Listen, I was just really feeling it today. I wanted to be in the field. <laughs> it's the weather <laughs> really was shit. it today, really? <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> Yay, I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Being on our little show and talking to us about your book, which I'm so excited to get into. Lizelle, do you want to tell people a little bit about what you write just to introduce yourself to them?
3: I'm a young adult author. I write all sorts of YA things at this point, but mostly fantasy, horror, and sci-fi. Those are kind of like the realms I'm playing in primarily.
1: So I think that most people who write tend to know when they're younger that they want to be a writer. They tend to come to it through a love of writing. So is that true for you? When did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Was that kind of... For a forever thing or did you come to it in a different way?
3: It's a little bit kind of interesting for me because for a long time I really fought against the idea of wanting to be a writer just full stop. I felt very strongly that people who wrote full-time were like starving and like oh no. <laughs> and I was a very academic child so I went to like an academic high school. Um, I did international baccalaureate and it was like very intensive and so I was very regimented and I felt very strongly that I needed to get a quote-unquote adult job that could (laughs) pay me real money and I couldn't be a writer in that sense but I did have a desire to like get published and have a book out I just kind of always went through this understanding that it was going to be an on the side sort of thing, not a thing that I would aspire to do full-time because that was impossible and not a thing that you could do. Um, It's really only since I've been in adulthood now and like in COVID where I lost my job. And so then I was thrust accidentally into full-time writing where I was like, oh, I kind of like this. I would actually like to do this. (laughs) And have this be, yeah, and have that be my full career. Because yeah, when I was 16, and I started writing my first novel when I was 16, I finished when I was 18. And it was very much like, I'm in university to do this university job. And writing is like a side thing, and always is a side thing and must remain a side thing.
1: What did you go to university for?
3: Um, I went to university for linguistics. Uh, I wanted to be a speech-language pathologist. I realized too late that you need very high grades to get into a master's program for (laughs) speech-language pathology. In first year, you know, people are like, take whatever you want, take whatever classes, just have fun. It's like university.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But also you're paying for it. It's fun, it's $12,000 of fun.
3: It's horrible advice um, because I just took whatever. And then I kind of didn't really super seriously take everything I was taking. And so I didn't do particularly well in a few classes, which, oh, the kids that you get in first year actually affect your GPA all the way to the last year. Um, <laughs> so that ended up being kind of, yeah, it kind of messed up those plans. So I ended up uh, going to uh, college. After university um, for assistant speech pathology. And then I got out and there were no jobs. And I worked at a sort of high-paid secretary job for a while. It was in the field, but I was mostly there to be a body to answer the phone if it rang.
0: Right.
1: Um,
3: but it paid very well. So I stayed for a while.
1: (laughs) Why are you telling me my life right
3: now? (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing, right? And it was, you know, I was fresh out of college at that point and like all of my friends ended up doing a fifth year like that's just the thing you end up having to do 5 years at some point and they were all struggling to find jobs and I had a job and I was making a large chunk of money and I was shopping all the time I was at Eaton Center <laughs> all the time <laughs> <laughs> so I stayed at that for 2 years and then I ended up pivoting into social media which is what I was working in until this point
0: earlier you were saying how you accidentally like because of I'm assuming you said because of COVID, you lost your job. Mm -hmm. I don't think those things are accidental when things shift in our lives and they kind of push you in a certain direction to focus to where you're supposed to. That's the way I look at things.
2: And Mm -hmm. so for you to
0: say, I'm like, "Ah, it was meant to be.
2: (laughs) It
3: does feel that way. It does feel like it was like, this is the push you need to Mm -hmm. actively consider this. Because there were several times where my mom was like, she was like, just right. She's like, you can just, I was already staying at her place rent free, but she was like, just right. And like, I'll help you or whatever. And I was like, no, I'm an adult. I must work. and I must do this on top of it. And I will suffer through that before I accept your help. Then, you know, in COVID, I was, I had to accept people's help at that point. Then I kind of figured out, oh, like, maybe this is actually doable for me. And I wouldn't have found that out had I not kind of been forced to.
1: I have so many questions, like where, <laughs> because I have struggled with similar things where I think of myself as an academic child and I was very focused also for some reason on like, okay, I have to go through school and I have to get a job and this writing will never be the real thing. It will always be the side project. So where do you think that belief came from in your case and how do you think COVID really was the the impetus you needed or what what kept you writing all those years despite the fact that you were like, no, I'm I'm going to have a real people job that will let me show up at the Eaton Center, but I am also going <laughs> to work on the side, you know what I mean?
3: I think it was really media because I never got that from my family, like, they were always like, oh, cool, you're writing, like, that's super cool. And nobody ever was like, you got to go to school to be this or that. My mom is like the most lax parent. Um, She had me when she was 18. And so my whole family was, I think, operating on the, wow, she didn't get pregnant. So that everything else was just like, do whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) and so it's not like anyone in my family was like pushing me to go to university or to like do a a adult job and to not do writing I think I just watched media and where there were writers they were always struggling so hard to make ends meet and so I was like okay I guess that's not like a real career because they were having such a hard time and I just felt like that was how writing was. And then when I got into publishing, you know, there is a lot of talk about how difficult it is to make writing your full-time job, especially now advances used to be a lot larger than they were. Um, Now it's a little bit different. They're a lot more spread out. And so also like, you know, there's a community feeling that is very, very difficult to write full-time. And so I think I just... I'm very risk averse and I didn't want to (laughs) risk, okay, I'm going to try and write full time. And then I was like, oh, I'll be a year out with, you know, I miss a year of experience, especially because I switched careers. And then I was starting from the bottom with social media. I was starting with an internship, working my way up and trying to get that experience. And I was like, oh, I can't miss a year. But I kept writing because I always felt that it was something I could legitimately do on the side I was like okay I can write while I work and that was always something I could do except in university that was the only time I couldn't write and I just stopped writing then and so it felt like it was feasible to do it on the side and then everybody else seemed to be doing it on the side so then I was like okay that's just kind of how it is and so I was able to continue going and of course I wanted to see my work published and that really propelled me forward.
1: What were you writing when you were writing on this side? Did you write, were you writing commercially? Were you writing long fiction, short fiction? Like how did you start?
3: I was writing long fiction when I was, when I restarted writing after university and university was a little bit strange because I joined like um, some academic writing courses and that was very about like writing adult short literary fiction and then you write a bunch of stories and then you get them published in magazines and then you send off you know once they're published in magazines and you have enough credits then an agent will like dine to pay attention to you and that's how you get into publishing and then when i was out of university i started following people on twitter and i was like oh you can just write the book and send it to them you don't have to do the whole (laughs) magazine thing
1: (laughs) The things you learn on the internet, oh my god.
3: <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's so much better because I'm not getting into magazines, with my short fiction and that's not even what I wanted to do. I wanted to write young adult genre fiction like fantasy and sci-fi. And so it was like I was writing short literary adult fiction to try and then write YA. Which thinking on it now makes zero sense.
1: (laughs) I'm gonna um, die. You're describing like my whole trajectory.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's academia, though, right? Like, you know, there's not a lot of talk about genre fiction, so you're so in the in the dark about what you can do with genre fiction because they don't want you to do genre fiction.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I didn't come through an English degree either. I did my degree in classics, which I also ended up with because of first year. Oh, just take what you want, see what you like, which is terrible. So I learned a lot about the writing community and kind of the mechanics of submissions and literary submissions and stuff through social media as well. And I've been trying to work my way back from literally what you just described which is oh just submit to a bunch of journals and then as you start getting published the agents will come out of the woodwork desperate (laughs) (laughs) to like agent you up like
3: that's what they make it seem like that that, they suddenly they discover you like they read you in what's one of them like prairie fire and then they're like wow this person I have to sign them and that's how it all works I really wish they would stop telling people that (laughs) So then once I realized you just had to write the book and then send it off, then I was like, you know, away we go. And uh, my first book was very bad. I sent it to four agents and they didn't respond to me. They should not have responded to me because I did not follow any of their guidelines. (laughs) I just like did what I wanted because I was 18 and I hadn't read and done any research like Gen Z authors, I'm like, you are amazing. I was like, look at you reading instructions (laughs) and doing things
2: properly.
1: (laughs) But still, I have to applaud you for the bravery. Like at 18, I would have never submitted anything. I wouldn't even let people read what the heck I was writing.
3: Yeah, that was helpful. That was uh, because my high school had a writing club. And so I had been in that for three years. And I think that really helped pump me up with confidence. So I was like, okay, I could do that. And then after that short-lived experience, I was like, I'm not going to write during university. And then I did it. But once I was, you know, 22 and I had properly done my research, then I could actually get into the actual work of querying um, and so that worked out much better for me and there was so much more information and like meeting people and becoming part of those communities made such a huge difference um not only in like propelling me to write and to keep writing because we were all writing together in a sense and so I kept going because I was like oh we're all writing and we're all trying to do this and keeping in those loops just kept me going forward and um that community I still think is the only reason I ended up this far because that really made me stick with it.
0: I was doing some perusing of the internets today and I came across your YouTube channel, which by the way, the fact that you put so much information out there and you seem very invested in your career, not just in writing, but it also the fact that you're creating content online. Renee has brought this term up a few times over the last six months that we've been doing this podcast, the term AuthorTube. For me, as somebody who's not necessarily in that world, can you tell me and our listeners a little bit about what AuthorTube is and how you got involved in it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, AuthorTube is like the writing section of YouTube. So, I think a lot of people are familiar with BookTube, which is like where they talk about books and review books and do hauls and that sort of thing. And AuthorTube is like the writing section. So, there's all sorts. So, people will give like writing advice, and people will also share their journeys. Um, and that's inclusive of people that have not been published yet, that are seeking publishing, that are writing for fun, that are self-published, indie-published, and that are traditional published. Um, so that's essentially like the lowdown on author tube. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up getting into it when I was researching. So when I was querying I was researching other people's experiences querying and getting agents and that sort of thing and I guess one of the google links much must have eventually led to YouTube um and I remember watching like Alexa Dunn and watching her videos where she had talked about like how she got her agent and things about querying and then I just fell into a video hole and then suddenly I was watching all these videos <laughs> from people about their experiences and um back when I I was like watching author it was very advice heavy like it was Mm -hmm. mostly people giving advice and so i had kind of wanted to get into video content creation anyway and i was like i kind of want to join youtube but i was nervous about it because i hadn't filmed myself doing stuff and i didn't know if i would stick with a schedule and at the time, IGTV had just kind of launched, which was like the Instagram long form content. And it was very new. And since I was working in social media, I was like, you know what? I'll try this out and it'll be a good way for me to test myself for doing videos, test if I can be comfortable in front of the camera yeah. and also test if like I could keep up with it, like if I can post a video a week and like go through that editing process and do all of that and stick with it, I think because I would worked in social media, I was very hardcore about it. And I was like, you got to be consistent when you do these things, you can't hop on and drop off. And so I was like, I need to prove to myself that I can be consistent, at least on this smaller, quote unquote, smaller video platform, at the very least on Instagram. And then I can see about going to YouTube. And so I kept up with it for months. I'm not even sure how many months, to be honest, but I posted once a week like I wanted to. And I felt comfortable being on camera and um, I had... Got my book deal shortly before that uh, but it was secret so nobody knew but I was like okay <laughs> I at least felt like going on YouTube if I was going to like share advice and my experience with people that I would be coming from it with some credentials so that you know I wouldn't I was like very worried about people coming up and being like you don't know what you're talking about oh, and
2: yeah. like <laughs> this entire podcast yeah literally <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh yeah that was like weirdly like a big fear for me I thought people were gonna do that and so I was like okay I'll start when I know I have a book deal so that I know I'll pop up and I'll be like haha I have a book deal didn't you know (laughs) (laughs) that I would do it like that um which is how like Alexa Dunn talked about how she had essentially done the same thing and I was like I'm gonna follow the Alexa Dunn formula (laughs) And so that's basically what I ended up doing. So after I'd done the IGTV for a few months, I bought a camera. I got all my stuff set up and then I just started going with that um, and then just kind of went into it and kind of became part of that community which is really what I had wanted I wanted to interact with other people that were doing it and like form connections and that sort of thing the same on Twitter or like Instagram I wanted to have another community there but like with people that were doing videos which was kind of one of those like career crossover things because for my social media career I'd really wanted to get into video content and this was a thing that like Let me talk about being an author and like my experiences and help people the way that so many people had helped me, but also like get to like fiddle with video content creation and stick my foot in there.
0: So have you found that by making videos, has it had any impact on how you write or what you write or your involvement in the community in general?
3: I pretty much write the same. I think I've always been weirdly regimented probably because I'm A-type and so (laughs) I was always gonna write the way that I write. I think it's just now I am documenting it in a way that I wasn't previously documenting it and so now like someone else is along with the ride and then you know during periods where I know I'm not really writing or I'm taking a break then I'll film sort of advice things and like think up on that on like things that I can help give advice on because at that point I'm not writing so there's no point in me like making a vlog about how I'm intentionally not writing at least to me I know some people (laughs) do but it seems weird to me and I'm like if I'm taking a rest let me rest (laughs) I want to be filming myself resting.
1: Also I want to confirm that when you say type A you mean aspirational because I've seen your word logs and I consider them to be aspirational.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mostly mean uh very Uptight in my focus, but <laughs> that works too.
1: It's it's goals. It's goals. <laughs> I was just gonna ask you about your communities on AuthorTube and sort of Instagram and Twitter because I am not on AuthorTube, even though I've watched AuthorTube videos, which I think are super helpful. And there's a huge wealth of knowledge there but in terms of community support have you found one social media platform to be just more engaging or better over another or do you have a preference
3: It's kind of interesting, because I feel like when I had started out, like, back in the day, Twitter was the spot. And like, that's where I formed most of my communities. And then Facebook had groups and that sort of thing. And that was another community. But I find that it shifts. Like, I feel like because a lot of people left Twitter, because it was toxic for them. And then they shifted to Instagram. And I find that now I talk with more people on Instagram on a regular basis than I do on any of the other platforms. Um, Like I have like group chats that are on Twitter, but they're not as frequent as something like Instagram. I think because people are used to like responding to like stories and posts and that sort of thing. And then once you respond to a story and you're in someone's DMs, you end up chatting back and forth i think that's how we ended up chatting also (laughs) i was trying to
1: remember at the top of the episode how i met you like with air quotations and i'm pretty sure it's instagram and it might have been like an author's follow loop or something like that but as soon as i started following you you're posting more and more about anime and i was watching you write and how much you posted about food and your dog i was like i love her this is awesome (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yes, and I remember being very distinctly obsessed with your dogs, (laughs) which I still am. That has never gone away.
1: (laughs) I will bring them in to say hi when we're done recording the interview because they are just way too annoying when they're in my office and I'm trying to do anything.
2: Yay!
1: (laughs) That's really interesting about the uh, social media communities, I think, because I also got involved in the Twitter community for doing writing sprints on the author community, but there's a lot of stuff on Twitter and I feel like it's harder to curate your feed in some way. And I can see why people find it toxic. I think things move really fast on Twitter
3: as well. They absolutely do. And then like the whole thing of, you know, when you're trying to grow your Twitter is you end up following more people because when you follow more people, then you get people, more people that follow you. And then you end up having like quite a large feed. And at that point, you're seeing so many things all the time. And so really when I go on Twitter, like I do some scrolling, but mostly I'm going to like DM group chats and that sort of thing and popping out. I don't actually tweet that much though. I'm weird with tweeting because sometimes I feel like I have to be funny and then I'll like (laughs) post a tweet. And if nobody (laughs) likes it in a minute, I delete it right away. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Oh my God. I love that so much because I vacillate between wanting to be funny on Twitter and then also being like it's my Twitter I can post whatever I want so the other day I got really upset at a Gilmore Girls episode I was watching and I posted in all caps about it and nobody liked it and I was like well fine whatever. (laughs)
3: that's how it is sometimes when i'm like screaming about stuff i'm excited about then i'm okay like the chaos walking trailer dropped and i was like losing my mind in several tweets and nobody cared and i was like that's okay
1: (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't matter because i love it
2: yeah (laughs)
1: for writing do you kind of have to deal with writer's block at all or do you do stuff with other people like sprints and online writing do you find that helps just talk to us about your process
3: my writing process will always start with an idea so usually have an idea that's kind of been bugging me because I'll go with the most persistent idea because that's really what's going to carry me all the way through a novel, which is sometimes why I will just drop projects and I'll pick up new projects because I have tons of ideas and I need to keep with what can keep me the most passionate through the book. Because if I am already like halfway passion wise in the first draft, I'm never going to get through the publishing process because I'm gonna have to read the book like 20 times. So if I can't at least be super excited when I'm done, even if I think the first draft is trash, then I can't make it forward with it because I'll just have to read it so many times and I really need to love it <laughs> to read it that much. And so I'll start with that idea and I will essentially plot it out as much as I can do plotting, which has transformed over time. Um, I used to do way less plotting when I first started writing. Now I do the most plotting ever because I hate revising so much. And I realized that when you plan really well, you don't have to revise as much.
2: I'm surprised that
1: you weren't a natural (laughs) plotter because you were just talking about how you were type A and everything's really structured. And to me, that would be like it would lend itself to being like, yeah, I'm going to have all my beats mapped out before I start.
3: No, I was a much messier teenager. And so (laughs) even though I was like a very academically focused teenager, like I went about all of my stuff in like the messiest possible way. And so I fully pantsed the novel that I wrote. I cannot think of things that i plotted i just like sat down and i just wrote out random stuff and i did a little grammar check through it and i sent it right off to agents so i just like did whatever when i was 22 and i decided i'm going to be very serious about writing then i took the time to actually study craft a little bit more in depth because even in university, like writing, like nobody teaches you structure. Like you just write your thing and you sit down in a room and you say your thing aloud and then people tell you if they like it or not. And that's kind of the end of it. My professor thankfully did go over some dialogue formatting with me because mine was so bad, but otherwise (laughs) it wasn't a lot going on. So Um, I really had to learn to do all that plotting stuff. And like each time I've written a book, I've done more and more plotting. So for a long time, I didn't plot any of my world building. Um, I certainly didn't plot any of my like romantic relationships. And now the book I'm working on now, I'm plotting all of that because I'm like, I must have this all down so I know what I'm doing so that I can put this out in a way that doesn't require that I rewrite my novel several times because that's a lot of work so I basically like I do that I do all the plotting and then I set myself a deadline my deadlines for myself are always arbitrary for first drafts that hasn't changed even since like becoming published or soon to be published I still set an arbitrary deadline for myself to write my sequel. And then I ended up being like very early and having lots of time.
1: (laughs) Yes, I saw that. Again, aspirational.
3: That was me. I was panicking because everybody panics about writing their sequel. And so I was like, oh, I've got to like work on mine right away. And so I wrote it in like a couple months and then edited it after like another couple months. And then I finally got up the courage to send an email to my editor and be like when's my deadline for this and she was like um March and it was like October then so
1: (laughs) you're like surprise
3: yeah exactly though I didn't send it to her I've sent it to betas and stuff and I was like hey I guess I'll just like edit it to death before I give it to you
1: (laughs) no no you just have time to finesse it it's gonna be as good as it can be when it goes
3: Yeah, it'll be very, very polished, which I like because that I can, you know, I don't have to feel imposter syndrome. I feel like if I sent it first draft style, I would just be racked with imposter syndrome thinking she would despise it because (laughs) it's the roughest draft. I don't even show my agent first drafts. So that's kind of like the process. And then when I finish my drafting, you know, along my arbitrary deadline that matters to no one but me... I will edit it a second time by myself because I don't want anyone to see my first drafts. And then I'll send it to CPs or beta readers and then they'll read it and then I'll edit it again. And only then do I feel comfortable sending it to my agent because I too don't want (laughs) her to see any early drafts. I don't know why it's so important to like maintain this weird illusion of perfection. It (laughs) truly does not matter. But I like to send her things that are what I think is really really good so that she's only pointing out stuff that I've missed that she's not pointing out stuff where I'm like oh I was gonna change that anyway and then me and my agent go back and forth on it and then I'll send it to an editor and that's ended up being the case for all my books just because of how the things with my sequel went down. So my agent will be able to get feedback to me and I'll be able to edit it before it goes to my editor again. And then my horror that we're on submission with now is the same thing.
0: One of the things that I wanted to ask you was When it comes to like creativity and everybody has their way of going about it, like where they turn to, what things that they need to, when they pause from their work, where they're like, okay, I need a break. I need to go back to this or whatever. Where do you find inspiration? Like where do you draw from in your day-to-day life that gets you wanting to like, let's get this going?
3: So it really depends. I find that a lot of the times when I'm starting a project, I'll usually make like a Spotify playlist or something. And then I'll listen to the playlist and that'll like get me hyped up to get into the story because I'll think about scenes that I want to put in while I'm listening to it
2: Mm. and
3: it'll kind of give me that visual. Um, I can't listen to music while I write I have to have absolute silence so um, (laughs) I have to do it before. (laughs) People that can listen to music and write at the same time I don't know how because I would get way too distracted by other things that are happening and That's why I do writing sprints and that sort of thing now because I focus in really, really hard in like complete silence for 20 minutes and then I can do whatever. But yeah, listening to those playlists really helps me kind of get in the mood. But like general inspiration can come for me, honestly, from anything. And like once I get a story spark that I catch on to, then I just tend to really stick to it and I'll make all sorts of notes on it and I'll get very obsessed with it. But it can come from anything. Sometimes I've honestly been sitting and doing what seems to me absolutely nothing and I'll get a full idea and I write it down. While I'm writing it down, I just like end up writing out a bunch of details. Oftentimes though, it's from like TVs or shows or things like that, like watching The Haunting of Hill House, which I absolutely love. I've gotten, like, so many horror ideas while I've sat there and watched it, and I've been like, oh, I sh- should do this, or I should do that, and then I'll just sit down, and I'll write out the idea, and then as I'm going about my day, lots of different ideas will pop in. I feel like this is part of, like, the inner monologue thing that has popped up where people talk about, like, how some people have an inner monologue going on in their head, and some people don't, and... It took me a long time to realize that not everybody was making up stories in their head. Constantly. (laughs) (laughs) I remember my boyfriend, when I realized that that probably wasn't something everyone was doing, I was like, so what do you think about if, like, you're bored and you're sitting somewhere? And he was like, nothing. My mind was blown. I was like, I have to keep a constant running story where I will get bored of living with myself. And I've been doing that since I was a kid. Like I used to have like characters. One was called Lily for sure. And I hadn't even read Harry Potter by then. So I'm like shocked that that came into my head. But I've been doing that since I was like a little kid, thinking up stories and just running them on loops to entertain myself. And so I think because I've always done that, it's been pretty like quick for me to think up ideas because I had to think up ideas quickly to entertain myself. And if I didn't have a story to go on in my head, I would be very upset. And I still do that, but it's still very necessary to me.
1: I think that's such a common theme. We just had the interviews and oh yeah, but we just had Davis GC, who is in the book club that I participate in. And he talked (laughs) about that too. He said that when he was a little kid, he was constantly playing games with his friends that had to do with all these imaginary scenarios that they would develop together and then they would act them out. And Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, that was what I did too. I would always daydream dialogue and I would write stuff down or I would have an idea of like a magical power or something and be interested in how that works. Do you find that with your ideas, are they more focused on people like character and conflict and dialogue or like are you interested in exploring like the mechanics of a magical power like a wormhole or like some supernatural event
3: my ideas are always concepts they'll start off with And so like for Blood Like Magic, the concept was I wanted to do something about a family of Black witches living in a future Toronto. But because of how I've studied craft now, I always push it character first. So I have to focus on who the character is in that world to start plotting because I'm plotting it around their character. And so it's kind of interesting because I'll start off with concepts and then I'll think, okay, what is the character at the center of this concept? And why are they needed specifically for this story? And like, what are they grappling with that will propel the story forward? because. Ever since I read Story Genius, um, yes, that my really. Drawn. Yes! yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: on myself behind me. <laughs>
3: oh, it's so good. But it just flipped the switch of like building with your character first and building your plot around your character and not the other way around. Yes. And it made writing so much easier. So I still start off with a plot concept, but then I'm like, who is the character at the forefront of this? And like, why is this their story? And so. blood-like magic that's the witch who fails to do the thing that all witches are supposed to do and is now kind of fighting to succeed at that after she's already failed once and so it's like black witches in Toronto but the plot is around her and that struggle
1: yeah I think that's so excellent and it's also a concept that i came across in tim clare's death by a thousand cuts and he's an author in the uk and he has a writing exercise that he suggests for for authors who are struggling to kind of build their story which is like if you have a person who has a weakness Or you have a world that hinges or like an event that hinges on something specific, like let's say it's very hot or something like that. Then if you take a character who would be the least well-suited to that context because you're trying to make it difficult for them, then the story becomes like how do they struggle toward success in that context, right?
3: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what makes it interesting, right? And I think that's kind of, you kind of make them an outcast in their own world. And they have to, you know, either figure out how they're going to belong to it or figure out how they want to change it or if they don't want to belong to it at all.
1: Yes, yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that so much, man. I was already stoked to read Blood Like Magic, but now I'm even more stoked. <laughs> Honestly, this interview is going to end up being three hours long. So I'm going to try to, <laughs> to get through a few more questions. I want to ask you, do you have any favorite YA tropes? We just read a book club book. Um, I was just telling Gio, we read Labyrinth Lost by Zoretta Cordova, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, for my book club. So we were discussing the tropes in that book because it's a, it's a fairly... Um, I think it was published like in 2012 or 2013 so there are a lot of tropes that show up but maybe not the most popular ones now so do you do any come to mind when you think of YA tropes and do you have any favorites
3: interestingly enough i used labyrinth lost as a comp for blood like magic yes <laughs> <laughs> tropes I always love enemies to lovers I've been enemies to lovers stand forever I did a sort of version of it in blood like magic I think the thing about enemies to lovers is that sometimes it can be a little bit more nuanced like it's not necessarily like full-on enemies I think sometimes it's just bad first impressions and that's kind of how it is in blood like magic it's a bad first impression that carries on for a while because my love interest is grumpy and that continues on he's just like (laughs) he's a grumpy person
1: (laughs) it's a bad first impression with a redemption arc
3: (laughs) yeah essentially because you know he's not great and she's like wow you really suck but i kind of have to be around you because the premise of blood like magic is she has to kill her first love to save her family's magic and she hasn't been in love yet and so this guy ends up being her genetic match so this is her one quick fast way to fall in love and she didn't like him so now she's like oh my gosh i've got to work at liking you I can't just ignore you and go on with my life. So they're not enemies, but they don't start off on the right foot. And it takes a little bit for them to get back to that. And so that's the sort of thing that I really like. I'm trying to think of any other tropes. I like. I do like a love triangle. Teenage me tried to pretend that she didn't like a love triangle because (laughs) it would make me so mad. But I honestly, I get so invested in them that I know I must like it. Because otherwise, why would I get so mad? And why would I get so invested? And why would I have to stand so hard if I didn't like it? So clearly I like it. And I read *Legend Born*, which I adore to pieces by Tracy Dion. And that also has a love triangle and I'm so obsessed with it. So, and then what I don't like, um, and I feel like this is directly related, is I don't like friends to lovers if they were childhood friends if they become friends out of nothing or out of enemies and then become lovers, I'm very happy with that. But I don't like when they have an existing relationship that I didn't get to see formed and then I'm just like made to root for them. Yeah, I don't like that. And I feel like so often because it's done like a love rival appears and then it's like a jealousy thing. It's like now after years of not caring about you, I have to become interested in you. So that's not my favorite. But I also think that like any trope with the right author can be made likable. And so I'm sure with the right author, with the right book, I could be made to root for them. But so far I've only been made to root against them. So...
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's like you said, there's nuance to everything. And I think that the most likable or the ones that engage us the most of these these tropes, as long as there's nuance and like you said the author makes it likable it can be really enjoyable and you can kind of go oh this old chestnut but you find yourself being pulled in and you're along for the ride
3: exactly and that's the thing about tropes right Is like people can twist them and reinvent them and like use them in different ways and that's what makes it exciting i also love a slow burn i also really appreciate no romance i think that also has its place and like is really great because sometimes i'm just like Sometimes a romance just doesn't fit. And I like when an author knows it doesn't fit or it just isn't needed and they just go ahead with the book.
1: I think we see that is a, as a crutch a lot in YA is that they want the romance or kind of like the B-plot romance to really drive the story. And um, I li- I like seeing platonic friendships. I think of my own adolescence and I think so much about... Gio, you don't count. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I think so much about the people that I was friends with and how there were so many complexities that we had to grow through and go through as we were teenagers in that time, trying to figure out how to relate to each other as like weird things were happening in our brains and our bodies. And I'm like, why why isn't there more YA that explores it from that lens?
3: There's... Also, I think a sort of pressure in why that you kind of like have to have this B plot romance. And so it's really exciting to see people push against that and be like, no, I can make it about this or I can make it about that. And I think those are really exciting things as well. And like my horror that I worked on, that's really uh, friendship and family story um, there's no romance in that um, I initially tried to force it in and then I was like this isn't working I was like they're just friends this is too much yeah. <laughs> and I pulled it out so I think there's I think there doesn't always need to be one and I'm really glad that that's being embraced more and why I was like there's so many more stories to tell beyond that
0: You describe your writing as messy black girls in fantasy situations. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means for your debut novel, Blood Like Magic?
3: I like to make a very messy main character uh, because it's entertaining for me, and also because I think that like being a teen can be really messy, even when you are the sort of teenager that thinks you have stuff together. Like when <laughs> oh, I was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: I think that's everyone in this uh, chat. <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely. Because even like you know when I thought I was a very serious academic teenager and I think back at it and I was like oh my gosh you did so many chaotic things (laughs) (laughs) worst part about it is that they were so tame they just didn't make any sense and yeah so that's the kind of character I like to do because I'm very regimented now as an adult so I find that to be really entertaining for me and I also think it's kind of nice because it starts out with a character that it's like It's really okay that she's messy, it's just she has to kind of find a way to be messy that doesn't make her miserable also. Um, And that really lets her go after the things that she wants in the world, which I really like doing with characters. So in Blood Like Magic, every witch has to do a calling as part of their coming of age ceremony to become a witch. So the calling is an ancestor calls on you and they give you a task, which is typically a decision Um, between two choices and if you choose right then they approve you and you get to become a witch and you have magic and everything is wonderful Um, and if you fail you don't get to become a witch and you don't get magic and it's a huge like shameful thing in the community Um, people often kind of get cut out of their families when they fail um, or they're just kind of shamed into leaving themselves and so it's a big deal to fail. They're also cut off from their ancestors. So they can see their ancestors when they have the potential to be a witch. And once they lose that potential, they're cut off from them as well. So it's like a double family cut off. And so Voya is extremely scared to fail because she knows she's not good at decisions. And that's her big thing, is she's very bad at making decisions. And her whole family knows that the whole time before, they're all like, we know you have trouble with decisions. And she's like, I really wish everybody would stop telling me (laughs) how bad I am at this, because she's already convinced she's going to fail. And um, then she does fail, which makes it even worse, but she's given this second chance to, you know, come into her magic but there's much higher stakes because now if she fails not only does she not become a witch she's going to lose magic for everyone in her family
1: (laughs) i'm so pumped and i really see the labyrinth lost connection because Mm -hmm. rita cordova wrote about this like ancestral magic right like alex Mm -hmm. the main character of labyrinth lost she was connected to her ancestors and it raises the stakes when you think about your family community and the impact it's going to have. And, you know, as a teenager, I think that's when you start to realize that your actions impact more than just you.
3: Absolutely. And it's like a huge pressure because her family to her is absolutely everything. Her family in that witch community that she's grown up in is everything to her. And the idea of losing all of that because she can't do this thing, like she can't make these choices, because she's so afraid of making the wrong choices, becomes this really difficult thing for her to overcome. And she spends the whole book grappling, because now she's also got this moral dilemma of, you know, you want me to kill someone when her family has rebranded themselves as being what are called pure witches, which means they don't kill people for magic. Um, They don't kill or hurt anyone for magic, unlike some other families who do. And they used to do that and they changed so that they wouldn't. Not only is this task kind of hinging on (laughs) her being a part of that community, it's the way that she was raised and the way that she was taught to do magic and to value magic. And so she's being kind of cast even further aside. So yeah, it's a big struggle for her. Um, and she's not great at choices and she's not great at being pressured. So She ends up just dealing with it in all sorts of ways that are pretty messy. Like (laughs) (laughs) her cousin has a fashion show coming up and she's like, I'll help you. And her cousin's like, shouldn't you be doing other things? (laughs) And she's like, no, no, no. I I need to help you with this. It's very important that I spend time helping you.
1: Did you plot Blood Like Magic to the gills? Or was it one that you kind of loosely structured because you knew how it was going to go?
3: It was not plotted to the kills it was i was i was a better plotter than i was for my first book or my second book but i was still not super great so i didn't plot any of my world building i did that all on the fly i didn't know what subplots were so i didn't have any subplots besides the romantic subplot um and i ended up rewriting half of it twice Once with like in a contest in RevPit with my editor there. And then once with my agent, once she was like, I noticed you don't have any subplots. And internally I was like, I don't know what those are. And externally (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, I could totally add those in. (laughs) Sure. But I had no idea what they were, but that changed a lot. So I ended up doing like a lot, a lot, a lot of editing to fix things up.
1: Yeah, because when you figure out like when you've already written it and then you figure out what's wrong with it and you have to go back and fix it it's so much harder as you said before than just plotting it out and being like okay here are the beats I need to hit and then kind Mm -hmm. of putting everything in between into it
0: Before we move on, I want to go off script a little bit. Now that we're on the topic of of the book, so two things. Number one, congratulations on being named yes. on BuzzFeed's book list for oh, 2021. Thank you. Okay. I saw that today when I was looking up, and I was like, that is amazing. Like that's <laughs> that's amazing. How did that even come about?
3: I honestly don't know because I didn't do anything. <laughs>
0: that's that's amazing so like you were saying earlier when you're oh we're told that people are just going to flock to us and we're going to get published but here we are people just it just happened
3: yeah it just happened I like lists I've shown up on I've been so delighted at each time and I've been like wow that's amazing like I've only written the book and that's all I can do really and that's you know, um, I was watching a Instagram live with JL, who's the author of Wings of Ebony, and Nick Stone, who's the author of Dear Martin, and oh, Nick Stone. Stone, and uh, she was saying, like, as an author, all you can do is you can write the book, and you can make it as good as possible, and basically everything else will be, you cannot control it. You can control the writing of the book, so focus on that, and yeah. focus on being good at that, and doing your best, and, like, the rest is kind of the rest, and so I'd really settled into that feeling because mm-hmm. I was like, I can't I, I don't know how I would have made myself appear on that list. <laughs> <just> <laughs> a book.
1: I still maintain the As for aspirational) <laughs> just yeah.
0: That's amazing. Congratulations. that's awesome. Thank you. So my second point: the cover. As a visual artist, that cover is so beautiful. Like who's the artist?
3: The artist is Thea Harvey. She's the illustrator, and then the designer for the book cover is uh, Rebecca Syracuse. Amazing! I'm super, super happy. I, I'm just so happy. I really wanted a black illustrator, and I'd said that from jump. And my editor was like, "Absolutely, we will, we will look. We will like, do our absolute best to make this happen." Um, she even emailed me to like make sure she got the hair texture right. Um, and like amazing and all of that. And we got Theo, which who did such an amazing job, like the way the light hits the curls. I'm like completely shook by it. I'm super, super happy. And it really reflected the character. Um, and I really felt like, yeah, I really, really love it. And they were like, we wanted her to like, look strong. And I was like, yeah, I do like that. Um, and I like it because internally she's so messy. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: like, never know it from looking at the cover yeah she looks no. so I,
3: in control yeah I feel like it's more reflective of like you know she has these really great moments of strength that she herself can't see and you know other people in her family you know her cousin um the fashion show cousin she's like sometimes I think you're the strongest person in this family and nobody's ever made you feel that way and So I really like it because it really shows how she comes across, even though she herself hasn't figured that out
2: yet.
1: I was going to ask you how much input you had on the cover. So did you get to have a lot of back and forth or did you get to describe at least a loose concept or did the artist, uh, Thea, you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah, did Thea draft out a concept and show you and you were like, how did you read my mind?
3: Uh, So we were shown the final. um, So just kind of like, here it is and then we could make some comments (laughs) from there um which were basically like like the shadows around her head used to be really dark and so it was kind of harder to see her face so we were like can we lighten that and then i because carabana is a big part of the book which is the toronto caribbean festival and i was like carabana to me is really like the vibrant colors but it's also metallic so i was like could we put in a metallic (laughs) And um it worked out really well because my editor was like, yeah, we're gonna so the final will have a metallic detail. So I'm really, really excited about that because that would really perfectly speak to Caravana for me. So I'm really excited about that. So like I didn't seek concept sketches, but I still got to bring feedback to the table.
1: So we talked a little bit about writing craft and you had mentioned Lisa Cron, which I've read Story Genius, and I also she wrote Wired for Story, I think too which I mm-hmm, yeah. read, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the best pieces of writing craft advice you've come across and what would you tell like what do you think the most salient or like best high level points especially for writers just starting out like the need to know things
3: are yeah I think because it changed how I wrote so deeply like that note of character first and like letting your character lead the plot and not having your plot lead the character, I think is so important and so central. I think you can tell in a book when a character is doing something because they need to for plot reasons versus (laughs) because that's actually what the character would do. And when you lead with your character first, your whole plot is flowing from them and what they would and would not do and also what they need to develop their character. So then Every scene becomes integral. It's not just like random scenes. It's scenes that are designed specifically to help your character with their growth dependent on their arc. So like growth if they have a positive arc. And also I find it makes scenes easier to come up with. Because when I'm thinking of what to put in a subplot, I'm thinking specifically of what is going to help my character grow. Um, And so it's interesting. I talked about that fashion show and that ended up being a subplot. And on surface, it's kind of like, okay, like I guess a fashion show. But part of it is her like avoiding her responsibilities. But also part of it is like she's helping this family member that then, you know, kind of turns out to maybe not necessarily believe in her the same way that she's believed in them so she's gone through this whole process of like helping them and doing all of this stuff and then it's kind of like well does that person believe in what I'm doing and what I'm trying to strive for and her kind of questioning that of her whole family now so it was a fashion show and like that was fun and I love the fashion show (laughs) (laughs) that's why I put it in but it does develop her character because now she has to question you know originally she thought her family was 100% like believing of her and believing that she could do this and that was kind of propelling her through her growth that because her family was behind her and that calls into question if they are which then makes it more difficult for her to believe in herself when she didn't already and so I think those sorts of plot points when you think of them as in helping with the character growth it just makes it easier to write because you know what all those scenes are supposed to be functioning to doing they're either helping character growth or they're hindering it
1: yeah you're not just throwing your character into a random situation being like oh wouldn't it be interesting if there was like a circus and then they went to the circus
3: yeah and if you want to do the circus cool but like think of a reason why that's relevant to your character why is
1: it, why is it emotionally resonant that they see the elephant and the elephant is sad or something
2: like yeah you, yeah context yeah
3: versus like throwing in a circus and they go and do it and that's the end of it and you're like what was the point of that
2: yes
0: one thing that we like to ask all of our guests is if you could look back at the entirety of your career up to now and you had to apply a theme to it what would it be
3: persistence is key honestly like (laughs) right (laughs) because even when I stopped writing I hopped back on it later and like especially for traditional publishing like that industry there can be a lot of rejection in it and you kind of have to keep going you have to keep writing books and even after you've become published you know if you want to keep selling books you have to keep writing books and sometimes you'll already have a book deal and you'll put a book on submission and it may or may not sell. And if it doesn't sell, you've got to pick up and write another book and move on and move on. And so that's kind of how I've always been. I've always moved to the next project, to the next project, to the next project, because I'm constantly trying to keep something going Mm -hmm. so that I can keep this career going so that I can keep my dream going because I, that's, the thing I can control like I would said before like the writing is the one thing that I have the most control over and so keeping going with that is what kind of ends up being the most important to like all the things I've been able to accomplish writing wise like to me having a new project makes me feel a lot better I'm not resting everything so heavily yes. on the project that came before I'm not like making that my all my eggs in my basket and you know if something doesn't go well I have nothing left um so I think it can also kind of give you more hope and something else to look at because sometimes you know you're reading a book for the 20th time and you're kind of tired of it and you're like maybe this is secretly trash (laughs) (laughs) and having something new that's like shiny and you can love and you're like oh well you're wonderful and i know you're wonderful because i just started writing you <laughs>
1: you pure innocent thing you're blameless <laughs>
3: yes You've done nothing to wound me yet <laughs> absolutely and it makes you feel better so i uh, i think that right the next project advice is really solid advice like and if you can um you know sometimes you're not in the headspace for that In which case, you know, those are times where I do all my story writing in my head.
1: Honestly, Lizelle, this was such a delight. I just want to thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And uh, our last question is just where can people pre-order Blood Like Magic and where can they find you on the Internet?
3: Yes, thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I am... At Lazelle Sambury everywhere, because when my ancestors got land in Trinidad, uh, they changed our last name to sound more British, and so all the Samburys are related, and I'm the only one named Lazelle. So. I get all of my tags
2: <laughs> all the
3: time. <laughs> so yeah, Um, And then if you want to pre-order, I have a bit.ly. So bit.ly slash magic for pre-ordering and all the book information. And I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube
1: thank you so much again.
0: yeah thank you i can't this is tell fun. you
1: i was looking forward to this from the moment i booked it and you don't even know it took me months to build up the courage to be like oh, <laughs> God, do you think she would want to be on the podcast so thank you so
3: much. oh uh, no yeah for sure anytime i'm really happy to be on it and i'm happy to be on a canadian podcast um do so so many American things and I'm like I wanna do Canadian things. That's where the
1: money is, so keep doing the American yeah. things.
0: <laughs> Good night. Thanks, Lizelle
1: Bye. So amazing. I well, I knew it was gonna be anyway because I've been following Lizelle for so long on social media and all of her posts are just the best.
0: I wanna read the book now.
1: I have already pre-ordered it, I think. And if I haven't, I'll just go rectify that quickly. But it's, it was on my list to do. Thank you so much for listening to me and Lizelle.
0: And to me. And if you have any burning questions or any ideas for a Listen To Me themed YA novel cover, <laughs> please email us at podcast at gmail.com. Or you can DM us on social media.
1: If you have an idea for a listen to me themed YA novel, I will write it and then Gio can design the cover. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I want I want concepts though. I want to hear I wanna hear what people have to say.
1: Mm-hmm. And you will have to join our Patreon to be able to read it. Uh, we yes. love making this show and we've gotten so much support from our listeners. So if you'd like to support our podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash listen to me pod to find out more about how you can help us keep this show going.
0: Yeah, and it can be a, as little as $1 a month. So we're not asking a lot. On the flip side, if you like what you hear, let us know by rating this podcast and subscribing.
1: Or follow us on social media at Listen to Me Pod anywhere.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> uh, and the music in this episode is graciously provided by audionautics.com.
1: Goodbye!
0: Goodbye!
1: Avito say go down! That always makes
0: me think of <laughs>